This week on Writers Inc. The best crime fiction, as with all the best literature, tells us something about um, human nature, uh, character, and, and right at the end of the book, I, I bring together some thoughts of uh, some current and recent writers, which I think are quite interesting. And and I think that the common strand in, in what they say is that it, it's about casting light on human nature. And of course, in the context of a crime novel, what what can drive a person to, to commit a crime, including, of course, the, the ultimate crime of, of murder. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Well, I think we all kind of came to some... uh to the same news at the same time. And it's not going to be breaking by the time this airs, but uh, yesterday we, we had a, a somewhat of a big announcement. Zach, you want to, you want to start us off? What's going down in the, uh, in the world of audiobooks? Uh, I was hoping you would preface me so I could come up with a joke, but uh, I didn't have anything. So that's okay. Um, you know, I don't know if this is going to be shocking everybody because of, I, I think that if you've been paying attention, uh, we've kind of, we, this was kind of obvious this was going to happen um, even before the news earlier. I guess it was this year, right? Or last year, whatever it was one long ago that, uh, that Spotify had bought find away voices, but now Spotify has officially announced um, that they're getting into the audiobook business. And um, I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, it's really, uh, yeah, it, you know, from an, like, I don't know. I think it, um, for, for one, I want to preface with this. I don't spend time worrying about things that I can't control. This is, this is firmly in a situation like where I can't control this. Um, but, and I don't know if you guys have seen anything. I haven't been able to see anything. And I've talked to some people who are, uh, you know, thinking about this stuff as well, but I'm just curious how the program is going to work. You know, I mean, is this going to be similar to what, you know, is it going to be like a credit-based system or is this just going to be a, this is part of your membership now, listen to as many audio books as you want. And, um, I, I think that's the interesting part because I, I, Spotify is definitely a type of company that I feel like is going to want to be a disruptor. And I feel like if they want, if they really can, they're going to find a way to just, you know, make it like an, a buffet type thing. As I think one of you guys said in an email or off air or something like that. Uh, I don't know. What, what do you think, JD? Well, have you looked at your your contract with Findaway Voices? Do, do you have anything with Findaway Voices? So I, I do. I do not. No, okay. I have, so I haven't actually been able to look at all that stuff. Um, because the the email was saying that it was like a, it is an opt in thing for for people who are going through there. So okay, I, I've got Forsaken with them, but I'm I'm also okay. lazy, so I I haven't looked at my contract. I'm waiting for somebody else to do all the legwork for me. Um, all my other books are with um uh, traditional publishers or all yeah. recorded books. I think did all of them. Um. So I'm honestly curious, like I've got no clue what books will end up on Spotify and which ones won't um, or, or any of that stuff. And I, I, I won't have any say in, in any of it, I don't think. Um, you know, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough thing to, 
to decide like we're, you know, but I, I think you kind of have to just ride that wave. I don't think we have a choice. I, I think it's probably going to be the, the all you can eat kind of thing where people are going to be able to just subscribe and, and listen to whatever they want. Um, but that, that's kind of where all of this stuff is, is heading anyway. Um, you know, which I've got a lot of friends that are musicians and they're always telling me about these tiny little checks that they get, you know, like yeah. $3 royalty checks on songs that are played all the time, um, on streaming services. So, you know, that, that could be us. Yeah. I've seen some of those checks and, you know, here's the other, here's the other difference. To, here's the difference that I was telling other people about too. Like, yeah, it sucks for musicians. Like it, it, it like, cause records have basically become lost leaders at this point, but that's the point. Musicians have other ways of making like it's it's just all they've done is like music hasn't become their primary source of income. It's touring and merchandise. I I can't go on tour as an author. Like <laughs> well, I, you know, could, but no one would show up. Exactly. It's not. It's like it's not that sort of thing. Like you know, you're right. Like yes, there's book tours and stuff, but that's a different sort of thing. That's that's usually for like promotion and not as much for like entertainment as a concert would be. And, you know, you can get into merch and stuff like that, but you know, it's, it's Jay and I have talked about this before. Like when you wear your band's favorite shirt, like your favorite band shirt, that's like a statement. It's a cultural thing. Like, you know, walking around with, as JD would call it, a deep South t-shirt is not going to be that interesting <laughs> to people, you know? I'm totally on board for the Writers Inc. Stadium tour. I think we should line that up. <laughs> <laughs> but and I'll tell you, like, so, and, and, and so my initial thoughts are, and I don't want to be the only one talking here. You guys definitely chime in, but I've thought a lot about this, especially since it was announced yesterday. And like, my initial thing is, is that if they do launch it as like an all you can listen service and, and the payouts look like they're going to be terrible, I can't see that many indies who have control over this sort of thing opting into it. Like I, I don't, I, and I personally, I can't because most of my stuff is, is ACX exclusive. So, you know, I can, I'm only on Amazon or, or, um, Apple for most of my stuff. And then I have one series with Tantor. Um, so it may end up in there. I'll be interested to see, but, um, but where, where I think it could get crazy is if Spotify goes to some big publishers and offers them a huge chunk of money to be like, we're going to give you this if you will put your audiobooks in there. And then I think that's when, the disruption can really happen. And then it trickles over to audible where maybe they change their credit system or something to follow the lead. I don't know. I just, I'm very, I'm not panicking by any means. Like again, cause there's no point. I'm very cautious though. It could, cause it could go one way. It could go the other. Like who, who knows? Like as of right now. Well, I, I keep telling myself that it, this is similar to a Kindle Unlimited versus the people that buy books. Like it, it's different audiences. You don't you don't find people that use Kindle Unlimited and buy books. You're, I mean, they do, but, you know, like they tend to lean into one camp or the other. Um, so I've got a feeling on the audio side, we're going to see the, you know, the listeners kind of break into those two camps as well. They're either going to jump, jump on these, these all you can eat type services and listen to what's available in there, which will be limited. You know, it's, it's going to be, you know, different, different products um, versus the ones who are still going to go out there and plunk their dollars down for, you know, the, the actual audiobook or a credit through audible or, or whatever it might be. Um, I've had stuff on, on the audible side that has shown up in their, um, you know, like they, they've got certain audiobooks you can listen to for free if you're a member. Um, and I've had my own book show up in, in that list, you know, like without even knowing about it. Um, I, I couldn't tell you whether that helps sales or hurts sales. I mean, I, I, I like to think that it helps, you know, just because the more your name is out there, the, you know, the, the, the better it is. And, you know, if somebody happens to listen to an audiobook because they've got access to that free service or, you know, they get it for free, you know, it's going to rope in one more person that might jump into your, you know, the rest of your catalog. So, you know, maybe from that standpoint, it's worthwhile. 
You know, it's been a long time since I uh, listen to author reactions to things like this. Uh, cause you know, it's all doom and gloom. Uh, and, and so uh, the author life is the only community that I'm, that I'm part of now for authors. And, uh, there hasn't been any conversation about this yet. Have you guys heard anything from other authors, um, either specifics or, or aggregated feedback on this announcement? Um, I mean, I've talked to some people and it's, I, I've, I've, uh, and I want to be very clear. I'm I'm not doom and gloom on this. Like I, I'm 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 very uh, uh, just kind of I'm waiting to see what happens. I'm again I'm not going to panic. But some people I I talked to a few people who are like very doom and gloom, and I've had to tell them like just wait. We don't know how they're going to roll it out yet. Like and again, it's not anything we can control. Um, but I I I I I I thought about for a second like getting on a. Facebook, which I haven't done in ages and just seen what the scut, but I was like, nope, I'm not going to do it because it's just going to get my mind going. And, um, so, so I guess the short answer for me is like, it's very limited. Uh, but the stuff I have heard has been people pretty worried about it. Yeah. Honestly, all my friends are traditionally published when it comes to that kind of thing. And we don't know where our audiobooks are now, you know, let alone where they're going to be. <laughs> you know, See, two and weeks I, think from that's now. A, I, I think that's an interesting thing too. Like a difference between me and you is, you know, you, your stuff is with recorded and, and, um, you know, uh, when you, when you do that, obviously the publisher's taken advantage is, is taken care of like all the production and everything I'm seeing here getting a series done right now of books and I'm spending like over $2,000 per book to get them produced. So I'm like, I'm personally invested in the audiobook and in, in that portion. So not to undermine you. And obviously I know you don't want to, I know you don't want your royalties on your audiobooks to go down, but I have a personal like front end investment that I'm, that I'm looking at that I need to make up on all these books as well. Um, so I don't know. I think I, like that, that kind of is a, it gives me, I don't know. It's, it's just a, it's a different perspective to have for better or worse. Well, let me ask you a question there because my only real experience with that is with Forsaken. And you know, I think I paid, it was $400 per finished hour. So it was like 4,500 bucks to get the thing produced. Um, yeah. and, and it made way more than that just in its first month, you know, so I got all that money back, but like those, those returns have been dwindling. So like if you know, you're spending two grand, you said per title right now, um, are, are you getting that back like in the first month or is it taking, like, are you noticing like a, a dwindling return on, on that particular investment, like over the last couple of years and last couple of books? So my strategy is a little bit different. Um, whereas, um, I I'm, I'm looking at a long-term strategy with the series I'm getting done where my ultimate goal is to sell a box set. So, because all my books are pretty short, so they're not really what you would call credit worthy with audible where I don't think people they're selling. Okay. They're doing pretty decent, but the people I know who are really crushing it with audiobooks, like making five figures a month on audiobooks, are all doing it with audiobook box sets. So my from the beginning, I kind of knew that I wasn't, I most likely wasn't going to make my money up. And I think on most of the books I have already like broken even at least. Uh, I know on the first book, I'm in the I'm I'm definitely making profit on that one, the first couple of books. But my my goal from the beginning has kind of been to ignore that and to get to the box set when someone comes on audible and they go, Oh man, like I can get this complete, uh, 60 hour series for my one credit. And then that's when things like really take off. So I don't think that I can really answer that question to, to the same way. Cause I think with well, your situation, like forsaken is a pretty big novel. I'm assuming that's like a 12 hour book or something like that. Um, so that's probably going to sell a lot better as an audiobook than mine, which are like five, six hours or something like that. 
Yeah, that, that one is, is 10 and a half. Um, but, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's been out there for a while. It came out in 2014, 2015. It was like the end of the year. Um, you know, so I, I haven't seen a whole lot from that title. Um, but I, I get what you're saying. You know, like Broken Thing is, you know, a very long book. The audio book is probably 20 some hours. Um, Dracul is, is 20 some hours. And like those kill it in Audible just because people, you know, they get that one credit and they're like, hey, this one will lead up, you know, most of my month you know, if, if, if I get it. So I guess it, it's similar to having a box set when you write a when you write a long novel similar return maybe coming up in elevation just a bit like uh, my initial thought was like i know i know spotify was heading in this direction but i'm just not convinced those are the same people like yeah like the people who subscribe to spotify are not the people who subscribe to audible necessarily like like the spotify thing like if all you can eat like okay in an hour i can listen to like 20 songs right what, it's like, okay, you want to listen to a song? Yeah, great. It's three minutes. Well, what if there's a book on there? Like, hey, you want to pop open this book? It's only 32 hours long. Like, you know, like it, the behavior is completely different. And I just, I know Spotify is banking on the fact that it, it won't matter, but I, I'm just not sure I see the, your typical Spotify listener starting to crack open audiobooks. You know where this is going. Um, so like I've got fire TV in the house and we cut cable a couple years back. Um, so when I want to watch something, I just, I pick up the remote and I say, Hey, show me whatever. So like we're, we're watching Top Gun right now. Um, so I've, I had no clue what service Top Gun would be on. I just, you know, spoke into that thing, show me Top Gun and it showed it to me. And I think it was on Paramount plus, which we subscribe to. I've got a feeling a lot of this might kind of go in that direction. There's going to be so many different places where these titles are available. Users are just kind of have, you know, one front end service that they use to, to search. Um, and then that is going to be, you know, like the results are going to be, you know, popping up through that. Um, and then that's going to come down to the company, you know, like is Spotify willing, you know, if my book appears on Spotify and it appears on audible and appears on this one, you know, those companies are probably bidding to be that top search result in those types of searches. Um, so, you know, it's going to come down to who's got the deepest pockets, who's willing to, to put their catalog out there on top. Yeah. I mean, uh, you're exactly right because I mean, I can attest to that because, when they launched podcast, I mean, it didn't take very long for me to look at it and be like, well, all my favorite podcasts are over here. And they even have some of their exclusive I like. Why do I need my other podcast app? And I migrated completely over to Spotify so that I could have all my music and podcast in one app. So, um, you know, for like that, that they could be going for, I, you know, going to what Jay said, it is a different person, which I think actually leads to a positive I've thought about which maybe that will bring people in who aren't really audiobook listeners or readers, you know? Um, and, and, and your case, JD, like, you know, if, um, well, I guess you're kind of a bad example what I, what I was going to say, cause all your stuff could end up being in, um, on Spotify. But I was thinking earlier when you said, you know, like one or two of your books ended up in the audible program where people could listen to it. If they were a member, that's a cool thing because if someone listens to one of your books, maybe they'll go buy one of your other books with a credit. You know, so if you have a few books on Spotify, you know, then maybe people will seek you out or maybe they'll come read your ebooks or paperbacker. So it could be a discoverability thing, too, because maybe it'll because I think Jay's right. I think that, um, you know, it is kind of two different things. So um, it's just going to be really interesting to me to see how they what they decide to do and how they decide to launch this whole thing. Maybe we're finally going to see some cross marketing. So, you know, like somebody who listens to Writers Inc. is going to go, oh, these guys write books, too. And they're actually going to find one of our books through Writers Inc. Um, who, who knows? Maybe that maybe that's where it's going. Somebody who normally listens to podcasts may stumble into a, a, a book title. So. Well, Jay, your BFF with the find away folks. So <laughs> they're in my backyard. Right down the road from you. Yeah. So... It was cool when we visited there. So, 
There's probably Spotify logos everywhere now. <laughs> it's all green instead of red. <laughs> well, I think we, uh, I think we probably talked about that one enough. I'm sure more stuff will come out, but, uh, I'm sitting here, look at me, pretend like I'm the host here. Uh, <laughs> like, all right, so what's <laughs> next, Zach? <laughs> Jamie, what else is going on in the <laughs> publishing world? Uh, uh, publishing world, first of all, uh, Peter Straub passed away, 79 years old. I just want to mention that because he was a huge influence on me. I, I met the guy once um, in New York at a book signing, and you know, he, he took the time to sit down and talk to me just to, about random you know, BS related to this world um, when he didn't have to do that, you know, which was, was very cool. And I, I think he's just was that kind of person, you know, he's just a very nice guy and willing to, to help out. So very sad to see that Peter Straub is gone. Um, I, I had a very weird week. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. So we had that, that rapper that rented the, the Georgia house. And yeah, I'm sorry about, about that. that. The, yeah. 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 Josh. Did you ever find, <laughs> did you ever find the music video? No, we haven't seen the music video yet. Do you know, do you know his rap name or their rap name? I, I, I do not. Um, okay. I was gonna say, yeah, they'll I'm, say it on the air. We don't need to publicize it, but I want to see that video. I, I want to see the video too, but you may be able to see the house through another thing now. So lifetime just rented the house. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're going to make dirty dancing. Uh, re they're going to remake dirty dancing. <laughs> I've, I've got, I've got no idea what they're filming there, but yeah, they, they rented it for, I think two weeks. Um, and they, they locked it down and, um, you know, for, for a couple of different reasons, it's got a, a crazy view. It's a big house. Um, but most importantly, you, they can fit 20 vans. Like there's a lot of parking. Um, so all these kind of productions tend to travel with a lot of stuff. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. I, I'm, I'm thinking that my wife, it needs to investigate this a little bit further because these TV networks actually pay pretty well you know they lock everything down they clean up behind themselves which is nice um but you know I, you know, it got me thinking like that this house you know this house is perfect like a perfect setting for a thriller you know so like i might have to might have to i don't do think that. that's what they're filming that, that is not what lifetime is filming i i, I I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what they are filming and i will let you know when they're when filming the jd out, barker story on lifetime <laughs> <laughs> Well, whatever it is. <laughs> um, here in a couple I, I, months, you're going to have the Hallmark Channel down there doing some shitty Christmas movie. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. John we'll Stamos. Fake snow in Georgia. But, John, uh, Jane Stamos, stamp, you know, starring in it. Who, who knows? Um, uh, that's an aged reference. <laughs> is, isn't he on Lifetime and Hallmark Channel and stuff I now? I don't know. I think isn't that where those guys go to die? I, I, don't you have that playing on screen four? <laughs> oh, man. Down in so the theater? I, I just wanted to bring it up to keep people posted. <laughs> That's pretty, no, in all seriousness, it would be pretty funny if uh, we end up seeing it. Not that I am like, you know, sitting there going to wait for your house to show up on Lifetime. I just think, I, I think it's kind of funny when you put a house up on like VRBO and Airbnb and, you know, expecting to, to rent it to vacationers and all of a sudden it becomes a, a film set. Yeah. Um, so, so we're actually investigating, like there's, yeah. there's lists and databases out there that the folks in Hollywood actually use to scout locations, you know, like basically film friendly type, type places. Um, it, the house is in Georgia, which, you know, they, they've got a lot of tax breaks for filming in Georgia for, for that kind of thing. So, yeah. so we're actually trying to figure out how to, to capitalize on that market a little bit. So it's going to be your lifetime cribs. It's be a rapper in there <laughs> <laughs> it might be yeah no you're right though you georgia know. is like i mean they they atlanta they filmed like walking dead a lot of the marvel movies uh hunger games so yeah, yeah. there's there's a ton of tax breaks there for all that sort of stuff yeah makes sense so aside from that i'm trying to get a couple words squeezed out here or there between all these other crazy things <laughs> so what, do, what are you guys up to Zach, what are you wise? working on same old same old so <laughs> And I had, I know I've, I've been, uh, yeah, things, things have been kind of crazy around here just cause there's, 
projects that I've been putting off that need to get done. And then I'm working on dead South still. And then I also just, it's uh, deep South, Zach. deep South, deep South. We, we changed deep that. South. And, uh, and, uh, um, you guys threw me off. Now. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm not doing a lot. Of, I'm not doing really any client work anymore, but I do. I'm still editing uh, one series for some friends of mine. Um, and I just got that book on my table. So I've been working on that. So it's been pretty busy over here. But uh, you know, a lot going on, but nothing, uh, nothing crazy to to say. I, I don't suppose. So, what about you, Jay? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm in day two of first drafting, which I haven't been in a while. I'm, I'm nice. working on a super secret project, and uh, I got uh, three thousand words in yesterday and two thousand words in today. So. But, but you know, like it's that starting excitement, right? Like we all start there. Yeah, ask oh, yeah. me in a, in a few weeks where I am and, <laughs> and, I, and I don't know, but uh, yeah, the beginning of the story is always really exciting and it's, it's fun. So uh, I'm, I'm just kind of enjoying that honeymoon moment right now, knowing that uh, I'm going to hit act two and the slog will come and I'll just have to get through it. Cool. All right. Well, why don't we take care of some business and then we'll get to our guests for the week. Remember, folks, Akoba Writing Life empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Uh, you can set your price. You keep all your rights. Um, you can go international and in all kinds of marketplaces. And you can do all that without any exclusivity. So you can get started by going to KoboWritingLife.com or you can click the link in the show notes. JD, who's up this week? Uh, we've got Martin Edwards coming on. He's going to discuss a book uh, called The Life of Crime. It's basically a deep dive into the history of mysteries, uh, crime fiction over the past 50 years or so. So this one should be fun. Here he is, Martin Edwards. Martin, I, I have to ask you probably the most important question that I could possibly think of first, which is what's that one thing you come across in a crime novel that will make you stop reading it? <laughs> well, it, it takes quite a lot to uh, to make me stop reading, but uh, uh, I, I suppose something that really is completely unbelievable. I think that you, you have to be prepared to suspend your disbelief when you when you're reading crime fiction. I think that's important. I think the readers uh, uh, got got to go along with it up to a point, but. If you hit a patch where you simply can't accept the authenticity of the emotions, the, the story at all, then probably it's time to call it a day. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. That's that's great advice. That's a, that's a good high level takeaway right there. So uh, we're going to jam pack this episode with crime writing tips. Uh, you as we're as this episode airs, you have a brand new book called, called The Life of Crime should be available now. We'll have a link in the show notes. This is a yeah. this is a massive magnum opus. Tell us about this project. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a big book. I'm, I'm very glad it's a big book. So I spent an awful lot of uh, time writing it, put an awful lot of work into it. I'd have been kind of disappointed if it's just a, a slim volume. You know, it wouldn't have felt right. Um, it is. It is an ambitious book. It is a history of crime fiction goes all the way back to the uh, beginnings, the origins of, of this wonderful genre, and it covers all types of crime fiction, and it covers the world. Uh, so uh, so ambitious is, I think, the word, maybe may foolish uh, as well, but uh, that was what I set out to do. There hadn't really been a, a significant history of the genre for 50 years since Julian Simmons wrote a book called Bloody Murder or Mortal Consequences, as it's called in the States. And I, I thought I, I wanted to have a go myself. 
and so the life of crime is is the result and the subtitle is detecting the history of mysteries and their creators and as as that implies it's it's partly about not just the life of crime the biography of a genre but it's partly about the the way that the ups and downs of the writing life impact on on the work that uh, people produce and uh, uh, each chapter and there are more than 50 chapters but it starts with a little sketch of vignette a short section which which takes an instant usually from the life of a particular crime writer and um, an instant that I, I i like to think casts light on on that writer's work and then i go from there typically not in every chapter but typically to discuss a wide range of uh, other types of uh, crime fiction that, that kind of fit in in some way to that uh, to that writer's work uh, maybe thematically or or in some other way so so it's a big book with uh, with three indexes to help the reader to uh, wade through the material uh, and as well as the uh, 50 odd chapters which tell the story of crime writing from the beginning to the present day in broadly chronological order there are very extensive endnotes at the end of each chapter and, and that's really where a lot of the fun stuff is is included the the bits and pieces of trivia that uh, that don't necessarily fit easily into the main narrative but but contain a lot of information that i wanted to share to to share my enthusiasm for this wonderful genre uh, my passion for it but but also to to give readers even readers who are very familiar with crime fiction some stuff that uh, that they may not be familiar with and uh, and to suggest maybe new authors to look at, new books to look at, new new styles of crime writing they may not previously have considered. So to look at the unexpected connections between different types of writers, different types of crime writing, different periods historically, and also different parts of the world. Because I, I do believe that the things that connect uh, different types of crime writing are really much more important than the things that separate. This is an incredible resource. The, I, I just had a notebook next to me as I'm reading it. Uh, there's, there's so much in here. Uh, uh, let's take it back to the very beginning because uh, I had never heard of the adventures of Caleb Williams until I started reading <laughs> the life of crime. So tell us about the significance of that publication. Yes, well, of, of course, there's endless debate about where uh, crime writing comes from. And you can go back to Cain and Abel, you can go back to uh, uh, the book of Daniel, the apocrypha, all sorts of uh, origins and in different types of culture have been mentioned, some, some more likely and credible than, than others. But if we're talking about novels, uh, of course, the novel is, is rather more recent uh, and I think that uh, e even if one tries to pigeonhole Shakespeare as a crime writer, and um, yeah, Macbeth is a kind of psychological crime story in a way. Um, when we come to the novel, it's really Caleb Williams that, that is, I think, the first, I, I would argue the first, to, to set out the, the, some of the distinctive elements of, of the crime novel as we understand it today. And Godwin was a revolutionary, he was an anarchist, he was writing at the time of the French Revolution, the book was published just after the French Revolution, and, and at that point, 
Godwin was uh, very sympathetic to the aims of the revolutionaries. I think he he changed his mind uh, uh, later to some extent when he when he saw how things were actually working out in practice. You know, the the practice didn't live up to the ideals of the theory, as so often happens. But his his novel, in some ways, attempts to uh, present a a picture of society and the things he thought were wrong in in British society at the time. And and the the original title was Things As They Are, which wasn't a great title, which is why it became known uh, as Caleb Williams, who's the protagonist. But essentially, it's a manhunt story. So it's a kind of literary ancestor of of books like The 39 Steps or The Day of the Jackal or or one or two of Lee Child's uh, uh, much more recent thrillers. It's, uh, It's a cat and mouse story. So, so it, it, it's quite significant in, in historic terms. It's uh, today not, not the raciest read, to be perfectly honest. It can be pretty heavy going. But, um, but in historical terms, I, I do think it is quite significant. Mm. Uh, th- there's a, a long history, as, as you mentioned, of, of crime stories. Why do you think this genre of, of literary fiction has has sustained readers for so many years? Well, it's a good question, and, and many people have tried to answer it. I, I think that part of the answer really lies lies in the sheer range of crime fiction. This is one of the themes of, of the life of crime. It's a very diverse genre, and always has been, really. Um, I, I mentioned the connections uh, uh, that fascinate me, and, and the, these are something that I, I talk about a good deal in the book. But it's also the fact that the best crime fiction, as with all the best literature, tells us something about um, human nature, uh, character. And, and right at the end of the book, I, I uh, bring together some thoughts of uh, some current and recent writers, which I think are quite interesting which uh, to some extent reflect my own views as well. Um, and, and I think that the common strand in, in what they say is that it, it's about casting light on human nature. And of course, in the context of a crime novel, what, what can drive a person to, to commit a crime, including, of course, the, the ultimate crime of, of murder. So, so I think that because it, it, it's essentially a serious subject, presented in crime fiction in the guise of entertainment. It's something that has a uh, uh, very extensive appeal and, and we, we can learn from it as, as, as well as enjoying the stories. Mm. Yeah, and, and uh, you are not just an academic. You are a uh, practitioner, a very prolific one at that. Uh, you have many, many anthologies that you've worked on. You, you have your own novels and short stories. Uh, tell us about uh, The Girl They All Forgot. Uh, what is your version of the crime fiction story? <laughs> yes, well, uh, thanks. I, I, I do see myself first and foremost as, as a novelist, as a, as a storyteller. And in fact, The Life of Crime, I've tried to tell it even though it's non-fiction, I've tried to tell it as a story, as I have done with some of my other non-fiction work. So storytelling is, is really important to me. And that is true in the different types of crime novel that I write. I've, I've written three series. Most recently, I've, I've written two. One is set in the Lake District, beautiful part of uh, northern England. I, I love dearly. And, and the other is a series set in the 1930s, 
featuring uh, a female character called Rachel Savernake and a young journalist called Jacob Flint. And the girl they all forgot, which, which you kindly mentioned, is the eighth and most recent book in the Lake District series. It's a book that uh, uh, originally, uh, when, it, when it came out in Britain, I called it The Crooked Shore. It got a new title for, uh, for the state. Uh, but it's set a around a fictitious part of the uh, coast of Cumbria, just south of the Lake District. And it's a story uh, about a cold case. It, it's, it's part of a series featuring uh, a cold case detective called Hannah Scarlett and a historian called Daniel Kind, with whom Hannah has a kind of on-off relationship. It's, it's, it's quite off in this particular story, but they're, they're still very, uh, very close. And uh, it's a story in which Hannah's looking into uh, uh, a, a crime of just over 20 years ago. And, and that, that investigation, that cold case inquiry is when, when somebody dies in terrible circumstances in the quicksand off the coast of, uh, of uh, Cumbria, Lake District. And uh, the person who, who dies was connected with, uh, uh, by descent uh, with uh, a significant but unsolved murder mystery case. And so Hannah is tasked with looking into that case all over again and trying to see what the truth really was. So it's a, it's a cold case mystery, but there's uh, the setting is very important. The atmosphere of the Lake District is very important. And the relationships of the characters, both the individuals who are involved in the murder mystery and also the, the subplot, this is a significant subplot in the story in the present day uh, with uh, uh, murderous consequences. So it's quite an elaborate story. I, I, I do uh, like to write uh, stories with quite uh, uh, complex plots, uh, but it, it's, it's a book that was enormous fun to write. I'd not written a book set in the Lake District for a few years. And it was great to go back there to do the research and, and, and then to write the story and to write it a little bit differently from uh, some of the earlier books in the series. Because I do think with a, with a crime series, it can be a bit of a trap. You can fall into a formula if you're not too careful. So I'm always very, very keen uh, to enjoy myself by trying to do something a little bit different with each book, even if it is within a series. I think that's, that's part of the pleasure of writing uh, writing a long series. It's certainly something I enjoy enormously. Well, take us into your process a little bit. How do you come up with your idea? Uh, do, you, do you outline? Do you start writing? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I've, I've tried a number of different methods over the years. And because I am interested in plot, um, I certainly began uh, a long time ago with my first series with... Uh, uh, with with a detailed outline. In fact, the very first book, a book called All the Lonely People, I had a chapter outline. I knew exactly what was going to go on. But as I gained confidence, I found that I needed to do less detailed advanced planning. I think the great thing about writing is the more that you do it, the more that you practice it, hopefully you become more accomplished, more experienced. And so the great thing is you gain confidence, which is really, really important, I think, for any writer. 
And the more confident I, I, I became, the uh, the more I was prepared to leave some of the uh, uh, story to chance. I, I wouldn't uh, uh, plan everything out in advance. So with the Lake District books, uh, for instance, um, I begin with an interesting motive for murder, something that interests me. Why would this particular individual want to kill this other individual? Maybe they're both nice people. So, so why? That's the driving force. So I begin with a murderer and a victim and a motive. And then I, I have to uh, uh, work from there. And very uh, often, if not always, I, I don't know how Hannah will solve the mystery when I start writing, but, but I have some confidence that often with Daniel's help, she, she will get there in the end. It's different uh, with the uh, 1930s books. I, I decided with the first book, Gallows Court, to write it in a completely different way. So for the first time, I decided that I, I wouldn't uh, plan it, plot it at all in advance. What I had was a character and an idea about a character. And the idea I had was that a young woman called uh, Rachel, Rachel Savonet, comes to London. She's extremely wealthy. She arrives in London uh, at the end of the 1920s. She's got a, an entourage of three slightly mysterious servants, all members of the same family. They've lived for years on a remote northern island uh, just off the coast of, of northern Britain. And they come to London and immediately uh, Rachel becomes involved in a sequence of bizarre murder mysteries. And it becomes apparent very early on that she's extremely ruthless. And a young journalist called Jacob Flint is fascinated by her to the point of obsession. And he wants to find out what makes her tick, what her agenda is, what, what, what is she, what's she doing here? And that was the idea that I began with. It was an idea about a character. I didn't really have much more of a story than, than, than what I've just mentioned. And so it, it was an attempt to write a book in a different way, different time period, different characters, uh, lead female protagonist, uh, no plotting in advance. And so what I did at a very early stage was, was this. I, I knew it was a big gamble because I didn't have a contract with, with any of the publishers I'd worked with. I, I, I didn't seek a contract. I, I wanted to, to gamble and try to do something and then see where it took me and then, then see if it could sell. That was the idea. Uh, so I wrote a short story about the character just to see if I liked writing about Rachel enough to want to spend a long time in her company as I uh, uh, wrote the novel. And I, I, so I wrote the short story, I enjoyed that. So I started writing the novel. And because it was a very different way of writing, there was quite a lot more trial and error involved. It went through many uh, revisions. Uh, I, I always revised my, my novels, but I, I revised that, that one endlessly, Gallows Court. And then at the end, I'd, I'd come up with a novel uh, but I didn't know if it, it would sell. I, I really didn't. But I asked my agent to send it round to the 10 best publishers uh, and see what happened. And, and luckily for me, I, I finished up with uh, with a two book deal. Uh, and, and really, it was the best deal I'd ever had. And that 
that first book, Gallo Schools, has done very well. And that book and the second book have now sold to unexpected places like China and Japan and Taiwan, things I would never have dreamed of when I, I set out. So, so even though I'd abandoned my my previous methods, trying something different really, really was uh, uh, something that was very lucky for me. So, so I would um, recommend people not to always think that they must write a book in exactly the same way, but it, it can be very beneficial to try something different. Yes, I would agree with that. Do you have a, a particular place that you like to write or a certain time of the day you prefer? Um, no, I, 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 I write at home in, in the room where I'm, I'm sitting talking to you right now. Um, but I've, I've had a, a job, I, I was a partner in law firm for many years. I'm still a consultant with that firm. So I've had a, uh, a full-time job for most of my writing career. I'm, I'm very, very part-time now. But um, when I was writing full-time, I had to fit the writing around the work, the commuting, family life, uh, a growing family, all, all, all that sort of thing. So I would write whenever I got the time, at night, at weekends, uh, on holiday, whenever I could. And I've never really got out of that habit. I, I will write whenever I can do, whenever I have the opportunity, but I don't have a schedule. I, I, I'm not somebody who starts at nine o'clock in the morning and then knocks off for lunch at half past 12 and starts again at half past one and carries on till five o'clock. Uh, I, I, I'm not as organised as that. I, I write whenever I, I get the chance, but it, it's, uh, uh, it's a slightly incoherent process in terms of timing, at least. Well, it seems like it works for you. Yeah, and, and it's, it's what I got used to. And uh, uh, it's, uh, it's not prevented me producing quite a, quite a lot of fiction. Uh, as, as, as well as the non-fiction. So, um, so I, I guess I'm stuck with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and in, within all this, you also uh, share your expertise with, with other folks very generously. You, you have a blog you've been writing since 2007, and you have something called Crafting Crime. Tell us about that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the, the blog is called Do You Write Under Your Own Name? This is a question I was often asked in my earlier days as a writer in particular, but still today. It's a, it's a very polite English way of saying, I've never heard of you. Uh, <laughs> I've never never heard of your book. So, so I thought it was funny to use that as the name of my book. Uh, and, and I've been, always enjoyed writing blog. It's a lot of fun. Um, crafting Crime was, was an idea I had. I'd, I'd worked on a book. I, I edited a book called How Done It about the craft of crime writing on behalf of the Detection Club. Uh, and many great writers of the present, as well as uh, some some deceased writers, have had pieces in that book. It was it was a lot of fun to do, and it made me think more and more about uh, how to go about writing. Uh, I also did some writers' workshops, something I really enjoyed. I started doing that, and it made me think that it was a good idea to uh, try and. Uh, something online and when the pandemic hit of course we were all uh, stuck at home during lockdown uh, that was the ideal time to to start to work on it so I so I wrote a lot of material for the modules and uh, then when lockdown came to an end uh, recorded uh, with a colleague uh, various podcasts and the colleague uh, Dee Parkin runs uh, a very good 
editorial consultancy called the Fiction Feedback. She's been doing that for many years. She's also the secretary of the Crime Writers Association, so she's very steeped in in uh, the craft of crime writing herself. She's a very good editor. And so the idea that we came up with was that there would be this online course with loads of written material, many tips from fellow writers who, who gave their expertise very, very generously, people from all around the world uh, who responded to my invitation to contribute. Uh, we recorded the podcasts and uh, and the idea is that the students can uh, not only listen to podcasts, read the material and all the ancillary stuff, but then at the end they can get some of their work that hopefully they will produce as a result of uh, uh, working on the course over a period of uh, months, typically six months, but it, it can be can be longer if, if more time is required and get that work critiqued by uh, fiction feedback. Uh, so get a professional uh, idea of, of your writing, uh, comments, constructive comments. Uh, so that was the idea of the course. We, we launched it uh, recently. We've been very pleased with the feedback so far. Uh, nobody's dropped out, which is great. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun to do and uh, we're, we're very excited about it. Wonderful. Um, we'll definitely have links in the show notes for, uh, for all of these Thanks. wonderful resources. Uh, you have been blogging for a, for a long time, uh, and yeah. I love the fact that you named your blog after a very common question that you received. Uh, what are some of the other common questions that you've answered over the years that you're like, oh, wow, I answer this all the time? <laughs> well, that, that is probably the most common question, uh, even to this day. I, I, think, I, I think that uh, people are interested in the writing process, and so the the familiar question of where do you find your ideas crops up a lot. And, and that is an interesting question. It, it is actually something I talk about quite a lot in Crafting Crime because a lot of uh, relatively inexperienced writers, as well as some more experienced ones, can have a bit of a hang-up about ideas. And I think that uh, it's interesting to think about the sources of ideas where they come from. Personally, I'm, I'm a great believer. Ideas are all around us. I, I got a, a commission yesterday to write a short story uh, in connection with the uh, promotion of my next novel coming out uh, in, in Britain shortly, a Rachel Savonet novel uh, called Blackstone Fell. And the commission was to write a golden age story set around Christmas. And, um, and so I thought, uh, wow, I've not written a Christmas story for a long time. And then uh, I saw on uh, the TV a very old Alfred Hitchcock uh, episode. Alfred Hitchcock presents the 1950s. And that something, a stray comment in that episode gave me an idea for a story. It was a totally different story. But it, it sparked an idea, and you can get ideas, you know, just sitting on a bus or a train, just just uh, things you overhear. I, I, I was once sitting on a train coming back to the north of England from London, Euston Station to to uh, the northwest, and there was a young woman who was on the phone for the entire journey, speaking at the top of her voice, and by the end of uh, uh, that train journey. I, I had my story already, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it was uh, it was there for me. It's fiction, 
uh, but uh, it was inspired by that very loud voice. Uh, so, uh, so ideas are everywhere, and, and you can make something uh, out of uh, out of experiences, good and bad. I, I, I was I was involved in a car accident recently. Somebody hit my car, and uh, uh, thankfully I, I wasn't hurt. But that I'm sure that will feature in a story uh, in the not too distant future. So you you have these experiences, you hear these things, you read something in the newspaper or a magazine or, or book, and it, it it triggers something in your mind. So so I think that ideas do come from everywhere, and that is what I try to say. Uh, it's like more uh, concisely when people ask me that question. That's a great answer. Uh, I, I can't help but think of the the long running series in the states, uh, Law and Order. Uh, you know that their famous tagline was "Ripped from the headlines." You know, so yeah, if, you, yeah, if you're just yeah. paying attention, there's a lot of ideas yeah. out there to be harvested. Absolutely right. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Well, um, this has been a wonderful conversation. A great way to wrap it up. Uh, you, you've had so many years of experience in in crime writing and in, in writing fiction. Uh, what are you, Martin, really excited about in the near future? Well, it's a good question too, because I think excitement is important for a writer. Staying fresh and staying energized, however long you've been writing, is I think really important. Once you cease to have that love, that enthusiasm, and it becomes drudgery, that that that's that's not a good development, and it's to be avoided at all costs. So. So I do look for projects that energise and excite and enthuse me. I'm, I'm working at the moment on the fourth Rachel Sapnay book. I'm coming fairly close to the end of that. And I've, I've really enjoyed doing that. I really like writing Rachel and writing the relationship between Rachel and Jacob. Those scenes are always uh, a great pleasure to write. And now I'm turning my attention. I've, I've got a number of short story commissions to think about, different kinds of stories. Uh, a number of them for publishers in the States, I'm, I'm glad to say. And now I'm thinking, well, um, I'm going to write another Rachel book in the near future, but I might like to try something different. And um, I, I, I was approached uh, last year by the uh, great American editor and publisher uh, and bookshop owner, Otto Penzl. I wrote um, a, a novella for him called The, the Traitor, a Biblio Mystery, that that was great fun. So, so that's given me an idea for something different that I, I, I might well uh, uh, take and run with in, in the near future. Because again, that's something that uh, that I, I was excited to write it, and I, I might take take a germ from that idea and, and try and do something different with it. So, so that's what I've got in mind just at the moment. All right. Before we talk about the interview with Martin, just a reminder that if you're looking to create professional print books and eBooks easily with an all-in-one book writing software solution, check out Atticus. Uh, it's a book editor with a word count. It's got goal tracking. It's got cloud storage and you can format everything in literally three steps. So you can use the link in the show notes or you can go there directly at atticus.io. All right, Martin Edwards, crime stuff. Uh, Zach, let's start with you. Uh, so, some takeaways, some gems in this uh, in this lively conversation. Well, I mean, I the uh, the concept itself was really cool. Um, <clears throat> you know, just I, I never for some reason I never really thought about 
the idea of having a book that is like the history of a specific genre. I don't, I don't know why I never really thought about that. Um, so just, just sitting down and like looking back and, um, being, putting that together, I'm sure was, was really, really cool for him. And I, I started thinking, I was like, man, that'd be like kind of fun to do for, you know, like post apoc or something like that, like something I'm really into. Um, you know, but so that, that, that whole concept I thought, I thought was really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy that the guy's been blogging about that true crime or the, the crime stuff since like, was it 2007 or something? Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, I mean, you got to love it. You really have to love it. Right. I mean, and, and I think, you know, that's where it started is he was giving advice to other crime writers, uh, given that he had, um, you know, all, all of that experience, uh, in the genre. I do want to come back to his blog because you guys had a conversation about that. That was interesting, but, but yeah. And I feel like uh, this is an instance where, you know, and we've talked about this before, I think on this podcast, I know you and I have had conversations about it, but you know, the idea of a blog being something that you could eventually build up into a book, you know, and you could do that in different ways. Like some people actually will blog a book. So they'll blog it and then they'll publish the whole thing. But even, you know, his blog was probably a really main resource for him when he was writing this book, you know, just because he had had years and years of writing on this subject. I'm sure he had mentioned different books and authors and stuff in the past with doing that and stuff. So I'm sure, you know, being a big fan of this genre, he probably had a lot of his resource there and was already used to talking about the writing side of it and stuff like that. So, um, that, that was a really kind of cool example of writing about writing on a blog and then being able to turn into a, you know, a tangible product you can sell to everybody. Yeah. I think if you take it to the next logical step, he also has a course on the back end of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so like, I think if you're, you know, if you're listening and, and you're thinking about author services or you're thinking about different revenue streams that you can create, um, certainly if you become an expert in a particular genre, you have the opportunity to teach other people about that genre or about how to write in it or how to market it. And, uh, I don't, I don't necessarily know that that's where he started. Um, but it's certainly, you know, where he is now uh, decades later, having, having become, you know, an expert in, in crime. Um, going in a slightly different direction too. Um, you know, it's, it's always interesting hearing about different people's processes and, and, and how they work. Um, and you know, there was a couple of parts he talked about with that. I think the first thing I kind of want to ask you about is, um, his idea that, he doesn't really have a schedule. You know, I think that's one that we don't really hear a lot. Um, you know, I think usually people, it seems like most people you talk to, um, you know, have like have some sort of routine, but he was just kind of like, I just kind of write when I can, um, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, like, I don't know, as someone who is very meticulously scheduled as you are, how did that make you feel? <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I'm as scheduled as you think I am, but, uh, or, you definitely or, give that, put that off. <laughs> yeah. Or, 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 or maybe I'm transitioning, uh, out of that phase of my life. I, I think don't know. So. Yeah. Uh, I think when your kids get older and you have less responsibilities, it's, it's, there's less structure there, but no, to your point, like, I think it's an interesting observation. And whenever, I, whenever I have, like, whenever someone, um, brings that up or I have these kinds of conversations, I always think back to something that Rachel Heron always used to say on, um, on the writer's wall podcast, she would be like, as long as your systems, as long as you're like publishing books or as long as you're 
accomplishing what you set out to do, then your system works for you. So it's like, you know, is, is writing in the margins ideal for you? Well, it depends. Uh, clearly this guy is prolific. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's published a lot of books. He's very successful. So his system, it works for him. Like there's, there's no reason for him to, to do anything differently. I think it's, I think where you really have to be honest with yourself and where you have to look yourself in the mirror and ask the hard questions is if you are, if you're setting up an expectation for yourself and you're not hitting it, uh, then you have to look at your process because some, something there isn't working for you. So it doesn't matter what it is or how you're doing it, but if it's not getting you to where you want to be, that's where you have a problem. hundred percent. Yeah. Totally, totally agree with you. And, and I've, I've said, I've said on this podcast, I think I was talking about a few weeks ago where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to go to a place where, I feel, I feel like less pressure to be so structured because I think for so long I told myself that's how it has to be. But like, there's also a part of it where, you know, I, um, I, I got into this. It's, it's hard to get out of that eight, that nine to five mindset sometimes. And I, that's a big reason why I want to do this full time was so that I can control my time. And so um, I say out to say that like my whole, you know, as long as I'm moving forward every day and I know I'm seeing now working and like you, you know, when you're working and when you're not, you know, as long as you're getting stuff done and you're moving the needle forward. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's really, really important. Um, what, what'd you think about also, uh, you know, I hate having, we, we bring up the outline conversation all the time, but I, I think it was, I think it was interesting when he was talking about, I think it was really interesting when he was talking about, um, how he felt like he needed to outline more as a beginner and then became someone who outlined less and would, cause, cause he felt like he got more of a flow for writing. Um, what would you think about his, that whole conversation? Cause I kind of feel like I can relate to that a little bit, like quite a bit. actually. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe I might want to ask JD first because he kind of went the other direction, right? So yeah. JD started out more, way more as a pantser and he, he's a little bit more of an outliner now. So uh, what's, what's your experience been, JD? Could you see people going the other direction where they were maybe more structured in the beginning and then becoming less structured as they go along, which is the opposite of what you've done? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to trust. Like you have to trust yourself, your, your subconscious in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, like my wife, you know, our daughter just started kindergarten. My wife is a writer. She had an agent before, you know, our daughter was born. Um, she had two books that she had worked on and she was pretty close to getting a publishing deal. Um, but being a mom just kind of put a wrench in all of that. So now that our daughter is back in school you know, my wife is dusting all that stuff off, she's got a call scheduled with her agent for next week and she wants to get back into it. Um, and we had a long conversation about this the other day because, you know, I've obviously completely switched camps or, you know, at least I've got a foot now in both um, since she started her, her work. And, you know, like I, I'm seeing the benefits of creating that structure and, and, you know, having the framework and stuff there. But at the same time, you know, you have to be able to trust yourself to, you know, look at like, you know, whatever you have on paper, this is what my next chapter is going to be about. And if it doesn't feel right, or if you feel something else should be in there first, or if you need to tweak it, you know, you have to trust that. Um, I think from my standpoint, like a lot of that trust and, you know, the ability to go off script and come back to it, you know, it stems from the fact that I was pantsing for so long. You know, I, 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 you know, I, I learned to trust my subconscious in that, 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 that entire endeavor. Like, you know, I, I always know where a book is going to end. And I just, I feel like my brain is going to get me there as long as I, as I, I let it. So even if I go off into the weeds, it's going to take me back to the road and, and take me back to that ending at some point. And it always has. Um, so I think, you know, I, for every author, I think it's really important to try and, and try both. Um, I, I do think the answer is somewhere there in the middle though. 
That's in, I, I want to ask you something that's like not really related to this, but I don't know when else I would ask you, which you kind of brought up, but like, how often do you and your wife like talk shop? Like, I think, I don't know. I think I've never really asked you about like being married to an, to an author, like someone who does the same thing you do. Um, well, we, we actually, we try to bring it up at every dinner so that we can turn it into a tax deduction. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise that me. Yeah. Yeah. No, honestly, like our only time to actually sit down and talk business is, is dinner, you know? So like we end up going through our real estate issues. You know, she tells me what's happening on, on that front. I tell her what's going on with the writing career. Um, you know, it, it's a weird thing, you know, like with Forsaken, you know, like that was in a desk drawer, you know, like I wrote parts of it and I kind of put it away and, and this and that. And like, she's the one who really pushed me to become an author. Like I wouldn't be sitting here as a full-time writer without, you know, her, her pushing me into that. Um, and, and the first, first time she read anything I wrote and you know, she basically handed it back to me and she was like, you know, that's good. And, you know, like she just gave me that cursory, you know, kind of opinion of it. Um, and, but I knew that, you know, like she could dig deeper than that. And, and she did. And like, she was very, you know, she became very critical of my writing. And like, I, you know, I've been in this industry long enough to be able to take that, you know, like a lot of people can't, you grow a thicker skin, I think over time when you're dealing with editors and agents and that sort of thing. Um, so from my standpoint, if she tells me a paragraph sucks and this is why, like, you know, it doesn't bother me, I go back and I, I rewrite it and I, I make changes and stuff from her standpoint, she's still at that early portion of her career. So I have to kind of walk that line very carefully. You know, like I, I see her making some of the same mistakes that I've made. I've seen her sometimes making mistakes that I've seen other authors make. Um, I try to address those with her, but I have to, to, to sugarcoat it a little bit. Um, but she is, she is getting better at it. And I think at this point, you know, like when we have this conversation, you know, like she wanted, you know, she feels that she's a pantser. Um, but you know, that said, she's got two novels that have yet to be published. You know, like she's really close. Like her writing is, is very strong. I think she's a better writer than I am. Um, but you know, like she still hasn't crossed the finish line and actually got something published. And I, I think trying to write an outline, creating that structure, I think that's going to probably get her over that finish line. So I thought there's one more thing, um, before we, uh, wrap up the, the convo on Martin's interview, I wanted to ask you guys about, and uh, this was sort of um, a little bit beneath the surface in our conversation, but it was an observation I had in, in listening back to the interview for um, for our show today. Uh, you know, if you look at the if you look at any of the Kalytics reports or if you look at any of the data in the industry, you're going to see that, that romance is the king <laughs> or the queen, however you, wanted to, however you wanted to define it. Right. Romance is at the top. And then there's thrillers. And, and then there's sort of a big gap, right? When, when you're talking about genre fiction um, with other genres. And I, I, was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, because the two things that we've all been doing for thousands of years is loving each other and doing bad things to each other. And that's kind of <laughs> like romance and thrillers, right? So I, I kind of just had this moment where I was like, yeah, you know, Martin's writing a book and he, he, he harkened back to some of the, you know, the 1800s and those crime stories, but those stories date back to the Bible and, and to other, you know, ancient texts. And so if you're looking for like the, the truest evergreen story, it's probably a love story or it's about someone doing something bad to somebody else. That may very well be true. I mean, there's, I, I, I read the Bible, like I may not necessarily be religious, um, but you know, the, there's a lot of good stories in there. Um, same thing with some of the other ones, you know, like it, any type of religious text, like that's, you know, that is the basis I think of, of modern fiction in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I think you might be onto something with that too. So now you just got to figure out, a, you know, whatever that gray area is in between and write something that fits in there, dominate that market. Hey, the first post-apocalyptic book I ever read was Revelation. There you go. So, <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, um, I, I did want, well, before we go, I know you're, you were kind of wrapping us, but I, I thought it was really interesting when you guys talked about his blog about the, um, 
how it centers around the question of how do you come up with your ideas? Like, cause that, that just made me laugh because, uh, I mean, I'm sure this happens to me enough where I'm sure it's like the same with y'all, but that is the first thing that all non-writers ever ask me when, when they find out I write is how do you come up with all your ideas? And I'm, my response is always like, that's the easy part. <laughs> I'm never going to write. I'm going to die with ideas. So like, I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting too. Yeah. Honestly, I'd rather get that question than the people that come to me with their ideas that they want me to write. Oh, me too. hundred <laughs> percent. You yeah. the ones that are going to do you a favor and give oh, you their idea. They're gonna, yeah. They're going to give you that idea. You're going to write the book and then you're going to split the profits <laughs> because it, you know, it was, it was their idea. Well, that's usually the second part of what they talk about after they <laughs> say that. Yeah. Good idea for a book. But anyways, I, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. That was great to have Martin on the show. I mean, the guy is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to crime stories. So uh, definitely check it out. Link in the show notes if you want to uh, know more about it. JD, who's up next week? Next week, we've got Josh Mallerman coming back. He's going to talk about his latest uh, novel. It's called Daphne. Uh, it releases September 20th. And I think this is his third appearance. Third appearance, I fourth appearance, so. something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, that, that should be a lot of fun. All right. Well, if you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.